Good morning again. Today we continue in James chapter 4 and cover verses 4 to 6. I've called this Grace to the Humble. So let's do a memory verse to start, eh? You ready? Try and close your eyes as you do it. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. Okay, so I'm just going to revise what we did last week or two weeks ago. The effect of pride on our prayer life. So, what's the root cause of Satan's sin? Pride, yeah. And guess what? What's the root cause of our sin? Pride. Pride tells me that I know best. Pride tells me that I should do what I want, what's best for me. And that causes me to be independent of God. In fact, independent of everything, except myself. So if I don't need God, I won't be asking for his help. And if I'm trusting in myself and thinking I know what's best for myself, then I'll be asking for things according to what I think is best and not what God thinks is best. And and pretty much that's what we did last week. Either pride causes us not to pray, in James chapter 4 verse 2, or We pray for the things according to our sinful nature. So basically, pride causes us to live or be dominated by our sinful nature and we reap the painful consequences. So, for example, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, it describes this situation quite accurately. It says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. That's important that we understand that it's a harvest of blessing. Do you get the harvest as soon as you put the seed in the ground? No. So you can get a bad harvest, but it takes time. You start doing the wrong thing. You think, well, nothing's happening. But the harvest will come. It will grow. And you start doing the right thing. You think, well, nothing's happening. But again, the harvest will come in time. Yeah? It says there, at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So... Pride. Pride deceives us. It's easy to forget just how ugly our old self, our sin nature really is. So I'd like to read some verses from Jeremiah which show how deceitful our hearts are and what pride causes us to do, what choices pride causes us to do. And I've got some key words here. It says, Am I limited by what I can do or by what God can do? Am I limited by what I can do or by what God can do? So Jeremiah 17, 5-10. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. 
They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. That's a bit of a recap, a bit of a summary of what we've done in previous weeks. So I'm going to read the whole of chapter 4. Before we do, we'll pray. Father, thank you for Lord, this wonderful book. Lord, it's very confronting. It's very honest. It shows us exactly what's going on in our hearts. It really is looking into the mirror. It's probably the most profound and reflective, if I can use that word, book, um, where we really do see ourselves and our true nature. So help us to not turn away from the mirror and forget what we look like, but to spend time in front of the mirror and to use your word, your grace, to seek your help to change so we don't stay like we are, don't stay ruled by our sinful nature, but instead we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And you will change us and fix us, Lord. You will continue to transform us into your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So James chapter 4, 1 to 17, says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. And what does covet mean again? It means you want something that isn't yours. If you're coveting something, are you satisfied? No. That's the problem with coveting. It means you're not satisfied with what you already have. So what do we as a Christian already have? Everything that we need. Okay, That's a promise. God has given us everything we need. So when we covet, what we're saying is that, God, what you've given me is not enough. I want more because I know better. And I know that I need better things than what you can give me, so I'm going to go elsewhere to look for them. Okay. So you murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So I just read the whole thing to give us context, to make sure that we understand how it all fits into the big picture. So next week we'll finish a chapter and that'll be the application of what we're doing today. But for today, I've titled this part The Cure for Worldliness, Dead Faith and Dead Works. And the cure is what? Grace. It's grace, yeah. So let's read verse 4, James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So these are very confronting words, adulterers and adulteresses. (laughs) Why did James call them adulterers and adulteresses? It would be quite offensive. I mean, we don't like being called an adulterer or adulteress. And remember that these people that James is talking to were faithful Christians, Jewish in uh, tradition. They were born as Jews and converted to Christianity. And, you know, they were faithful to go to church. I doubt that any of them were really being unfaithful to their spouse. Maybe a few of them, but the majority would not be. But what James is doing is going back to the Old Testament. So these Jews would be very familiar with what the Old Testament says. And for the Jew, it's called the Jewish Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And in there, God often uses this external picture of marital adultery or unfaithfulness of a husband or wife turning away from and rejecting their spouse to describe, or as a picture of, the internal turning away of their hearts from God when they stopped seeking God and worshipped and trusted their idols instead. So I'm going to go back in the Old Testament and so we can pick up this theme of spiritual adultery. So the first one is Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. Then when they are exiled among the nations, they will remember me. They will recognize how hurt I am by their unfaithful, adulterous hearts and lustful eyes that long for their idols. Then at last they will hate themselves for all their detestable sins. And another one is Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods to love and worship them. So it's very clear. God is using marital adultery, the husband and wife 
being unfaithful to each other to illustrate what happens on a spiritual level when we turn away from God and turn to the things of the world. Another one is Ezekiel 16.32. It says, Yes, you are an adulterous wife who takes in strangers instead of her own husband. Now, there's some verses in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, and Ezekiel 33, 37 to 39. So I'm just going to give you a bit of background for this. There was a really godly king. His name was Josiah. And in his day, they found the book of the law. It had been lost. Can you imagine that? Worshipping in the temple without the Bible, without the book of the law. (laughs) So anyway, they found the book of the law, and King Josiah read it, and he had a humble heart and he repented, and he started this whole process of cleansing the land from all the idols that the people were worshipping. And he demanded that all the people worship at the temple only, and they obey the laws of God. But God saw the people's hearts, that even though they were coming back to the temple and not worshipping idols, because Josiah had taken them all away, their hearts weren't right. The northern kingdom of Israel, they had been defeated by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom called Judah should have known that, well, if you disobey God and you're a child of God, you're the people of God, then God will have to discipline you. And so God disciplined the northern kingdom by allowing the Assyrians to come in and take them captive into different lands and he destroyed completely the city of Samaria. So that's the background for this. And then the verses in Ezekiel, it's after Josiah has died, and Ezekiel is writing from Babylon, he's already been taken captive there. But the Jews are still in Jerusalem, there's still some left. And they rebuilt the idols and all the places for pagan worship, the false temples, and they've gone back to sacrificing their kids and offering these sacrifices at all these false altars. So basically they've gone back to what they were doing before and they are then going to the temple and fulfilling what the law requires as far as the animal sacrifices and things like that. So let's read it. Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 6 to 10. During the reign of godly King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what fickle Israel, that's the northern kingdom, has done? Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshipped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her faithless sister Judah, that's her southern kingdom, saw this. They're still in the land at this time. She saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery. They went into captivity. But that treacherous sister Judah had no fear. And now she too has left me and given herself to prostitution, (laughs) worshipping idols, spiritual prostitution. Israel, the northern kingdom, treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshipping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted. But despite all this, her faithless sister Judah, the southern kingdom, 
has never sincerely returned to me. She has only pretended to be sorry. I, the Lord, have spoken. Okay, so Judah has seen the northern kingdom of Israel be taken captive, wiped out. But despite this, she never sincerely returned to me. She has only pretended to be sorry. I, the Lord, have spoken. And we see the evidence of this a few years later when Ezekiel gives one of his prophecies. He says in Ezekiel 33, 37 to 39, They have committed both adultery and murder, adultery by worshipping idols, and murder by burning as sacrifices the children they bore to me. Furthermore, they have defiled my temple and violated my Sabbath day. On the very day that they sacrificed their children to their idols, they came boldly into my temple to worship. They came in and defiled my house. Can you imagine doing that? Going to Moloch, offering your child... I won't describe what happens. But um, offering the child on the altar. And then they come into the house of God on the very same day and offer sacrifices. And thinking there, oh, we're good now because we've done what God wants. So these people were not committed to God. They were not seeking God. They were not depending on God. They were not trusting in God. And as a result, God rejected their worship and their sacrifices. They were all in vain. Remember we talked before about how deceitful our hearts can be and pride and things like that? The sad fact is that though these people thought or considered themselves to be morally upright and they kept the temporal rituals, and they thought they were pleasing God by obeying these rituals, you know, going to the temple and offering sacrifices, they were actually completely deceived by their desperately wicked hearts. God saw their hearts, their secret motives, and he was anything but pleased. Now, you know what God eventually did? He had to discipline them. They never repented, they never humbled themselves, and so the Babylonians came and eventually destroyed the city and the temple. Remember, in previous weeks we've read those verses about asking God to reveal what the true intentions and motives of our heart are. It's best to do that, it's best to humble ourselves, because if we don't, then God has to humble us. Okay, We suffer his discipline, just like Israel did. Now, verse 4, I'm going to read that again. Adulterers and adulteresses. So we've covered that, what James meant by that. He's talking about spiritual adultery. He's applying that idea. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm going to read this verse from the New Living and the Amplified Bibles too. It says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. The Amplified Bible says it this way, You are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. Do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world takes his stand as an enemy of God. Now we're going to come back to that whole enemy thing later on how we make ourselves an enemy of God. It's a very serious thing. But for now, I just want to focus on this connection between the Old Testament picture of spiritual adultery 
when the Jews have worshipped other gods, and our covetousness and friendship with the world at the present time when we choose not to be satisfied and content with what God gives us. So nothing has changed. We can be going to church, pretending to be spiritual, just like the Jews in Judah were, doing all the temple rituals. However, on the inside, hidden from the view of those around us, we can be seeking pleasure or fulfillment from the world. God is not interested in second best, in what's left over. He wants all of us. He is jealous of our affections, our hearts. And the question for us all today is, who or what do I love the most? Or put another way, what is most important to me? Pleasing God by putting him first or pleasing myself by seeking to be satisfied by what the world offers? And that's what it means when it says the friendship of the world. So here James is rebuking the Christians in the early church for their compromise with the world and covetousness or idolatry. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 talks about this connection between idolatry and wanting the things that the world offers. It says, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Now what's that? That's your sinful nature. Your human nature. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust and evil desires. Can you see evil desires? Is it something you do or is it something you choose to focus on or think about? Don't be greedy. That means covetousness. For a greedy or covetous person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. So just like the Jews would worship the idols, we are idolaters if we worship the things of this world. Nothing's changed today. We don't have the physical idols. We don't have those representations of these things. But we still do the same things that the Jews would do when they worship their idols. We have pornography and gaming and gambling and social media where we seek acceptance. We have worldly music, drinking, um, sex and sexual perversions, wealth, ambition, fame, drugs and violence. Nothing's changed. It's the same old human nature. And verse 4 it says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And a quote from David Guzik. James recognizes that we cannot both be friends of this world system in rebellion against God and friends of God at the same time. So notice that he says they're friends of this world system in rebellion against God. This world system is in rebellion against God. And so if you're friends with this world system, you also are now in rebellion against God. Even the desire to be a friend, where it says wants to be a friend, of the world makes that one an enemy of God. Now this was quite powerful to me. I thought about this a lot. In verse 4 where it says wants to be a friend of the world. This means that we may not actually do the behavior, but inwardly we would love to. We see the world living in a way that pleases the sinful nature and we long to have that same satisfaction, that same acceptance, to be able to do those same things. However, we don't outwardly perform the act, but only because we don't want to be caught. The shame, the cost to our reputation is too much. It outweighs the perceived benefit or pleasure we might get from the sin. 
So the important point here is that even if we are just wanting the things of the world, but not outwardly living in a worldly way, we are still just as bad. Our hearts are still directed to the world and away from God. And a quote from Moffat, Such friendship with the world means that one is on a footing of hostility towards God, for it defies his will and despises his purpose. Disguise it as one may. It is an implicit challenge to God. And uh, Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And we move on to verse 5, James chapter 4, verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? So the Holy Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. David Guzik says, The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit has a jealous yearning for our friendship with God. The Spirit will convict the Christian who lives in compromise. Again, that's like in Hebrews, it says, God disciplines those he loves. Meyer says, James went so far as to speak of them as adulterers and adulteresses, and then adopting a gentler pleading tone, he says, You are grieving the Holy Spirit who has come to dwell within you, who yearns with a jealous envy to possess your entire nature for himself. So what does it mean when it says that God is jealous of us, the Holy Spirit is jealous of us? It's an important concept, so let's have a look. We'll dig into the Old Testament. There's lots of Old Testament verses, but we'll just read a couple. The first one is Exodus chapter 34, verses 12 to 14. It says this, Be very careful never to make a treaty with the people who live in the land where you are going. It's talking about the Israelites living in the land of Canaan where they did lots of bad stuff. Really bad stuff. If you do, you will follow their evil ways and be trapped. Instead, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their Asherah poles. You must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. Did you know that one of the names for God is Jealous? Now you do. You must worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is Jealous about what? About his relationship with you. So, Deuteronomy 32, 16-21, talking about the children of Israel again. They stirred up his jealousy by worshipping foreign gods. They provoked his fury with detestable deeds. So, worshipping foreign gods goes along with all the bad stuff that we do today. All the sin that we do today. They offered sacrifices to demons which are not God. To gods they had not known before. To new gods only recently arrived, to gods the ancestors had never feared. You neglected the rock who had fathered you. You forgot the God who had given you birth. So it's neglect and it's forgetfulness that causes us to walk away from the Lord. Verse 19, the Lord saw this and drew back, provoked to anger by his own sons and daughters. He said, I will abandon them. Then see what becomes of them, for they are a twisted generation, children without integrity. 
They have roused my jealousy by worshipping things that are not God. They have provoked my anger with their useless idols. So what does it mean when the Bible says that God is jealous of our affections? Well, Barclay puts it this way. He says, The idea is that God loves men with such a passion that he cannot bear any other love within the hearts of men. So a little story to try and illustrate this. Imagine you've been married for 20 years, you know, or more. Happily married for 20 years. You and your wife or husband, depending, have been really, really close for 20 years. You have a deep love for your spouse and you enjoy doing everything with them. Then one day your husband or your wife decides that they don't love you anymore. An intruder has stolen their heart, their affections. This new person doesn't love them and is only using them, deceiving them. You know that your precious spouse will end up used and abused, their life wasted and empty. So put yourself in that situation. Your wife or your husband has been unfaithful and how do you feel? Well, jealous, heartbroken, hurt, angry, grieved, yeah? Would you be longing for that relationship to be restored? Well, if you really love them, of course, yeah? It's going to be difficult. It's always hard to forgive. But, guess what? God does. If we are jealous in a good way, we will do everything we can to protect our relationship with that person so that it won't be broken. So remember there's an evil way to be jealous, which is selfish, but then there's a good way to be jealous, which is an unselfish jealousy. So now, think about our relationship with God. If I turn my back on God and desire friendship with the world, if I start to desire the things and pleasures that the world offers, then how does God feel? Well, it's the same. Guess what? When you become a Christian, you are betrothed to Christ. You are married to Him. God feels jealous, hurt, heartbroken, angry, grieved. And because God is jealous, in a good way, of my relationship with Him, He does everything He can to protect our relationship. He disciplines me. Yeah. So that's the purpose of why God disciplines us is because he loves us and he's trying to protect the relationship that he has with us. So when we walk away from God, does God long for the relationship to be restored? Absolutely. (laughs) No matter how much we hurt God, God is always ready to forgive us and cleanse us. And that's a promise found in 1 John 1.9. It says from the Amplified Bible, If we freely admit we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That means true to his own nature and promises. And will forgive our sins, dismiss our lawlessness, and continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness, everything not in conformity to his will in purpose, thought, and action. So, talking about covetousness here, I was just thinking about it this morning. When we turn away from God, what are we saying to him? It's like the wife or husband turning away, you know, or for me as a husband, if my wife turned away, what's she saying? You don't satisfy me anymore. 
you don't have what I want. I can find better elsewhere. So when we're coveting as a Christian, what we're doing is we're actually telling God that what you offer me is no good. I don't like what you offer me anymore. The world offers me much better stuff, in my opinion. And I'm going to be chasing that. See you later. So, we need to realize that our turning away from God grieves God like an unfaithful spouse grieves us. Sin hurts God more than it hurts us. And true repentance is based on us starting to understand and recognize that sin hurts God deeply. Now, I'm not talking about the punishment or wrath that Jesus suffered on the cross for every sin ever committed. That's even greater than this. But I'm talking about how God is grieved when we choose to love something more than him now. Since we committed ourselves to him in marriage, we are betrothed to him. So as a Christian, we still grieve the Lord. We still hurt the Lord. We make him sad. So in a human relationship, think about in a human level for now, if one person really loves the other person, the other person doesn't love the other person very much, if there's a separation, who hurts the most? The person who loves a lot or the person who loves a little? The person who loves a lot. They've got more invested in the other person, right? So the deeper or greater the love that you have for the other person, the deeper or greater the hurt, the grief, the sadness that results from the separation or broken relationship. And it's the same with our relationship with God. Sin or unfaithfulness hurts or grieve God more than us. We get hurt, yes we do. But it hurts God more than us because God loves us so much more than we love him. And therefore he is more affected by the broken relationship when we choose to sin. So just remember, when it comes to repentance, what should motivate us to repent? Well, what we do really does affect God. We either bring joy to our loving Heavenly Father's heart, like the prodigal son returning home, or we bring grief to our father, like the prodigal son demanding his share of the inheritance and leaving home so he could live a worldly lifestyle, satisfying the desires of his sinful nature. So, the Bible talks about grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. I'm going to read it from two different translations, in New King James first. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And from the new living, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved in the day of redemption. So I'll just read the first part of that, Ephesians 4.30, for the new living. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. He's talking to Christians here. The Greek word translated grieve or bring sorrow in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 means to grieve, vex, offend, insult, become sad, distressed, sorrowful, to harm, causing or marked by grief or pain. Now, why would God feel jealous? Why do we feel jealous and angry and grieved and sad when someone turns away from us? Because we long to love them and to continue to enjoy fellowship with them. 
We long to continue to be a blessing to them, to be able to help them, to want the best for them. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Now think of how a parent feels when they're disowned by their child. The pain is horrible, it's immense. The parent isn't seeking their relationship with the child for what they can get, but rather for what they can give. The child can't really give much to the parent, but the parent is hurt when the relationship is broken because they can no longer give to their child, no longer help and support and nurture and provide for their child. That's the parent's heart, and that's how it is with God. You see, godly jealousy is not based on what I can get, but rather what I can give. When I love someone, I am hurt, angry, and jealous because the other person or thing is stopping me, that intruder, is stopping me from being able to be a blessing to the one I love. That other love, that intruder, has broken the relationship that we once enjoyed. Just as I am grieved or saddened when my spouse or child is no longer able to receive and enjoy the love and blessings we once shared, so God is grieved or saddened or pained when I choose not to receive and enjoy the love and blessings he wants to lavish on me. And a quote from David Guzik, Think of the inner pain and torture inside the person who is betrayed by an unfaithful spouse who must reckon with the truth. I am faithful to them, but they are not faithful to me. This is what the Spirit of God feels regarding our world-loving hearts. So now, now we come to the solution for worldliness. In humility, we get right with God. We repent. So James chapter 4 verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the first word here is but. It's a contrast. In the previous verses, it's all about us being unfaithful and causing pain. But here, it's but. And now the focus is on who? God. It says, but he, but God gives more grace. So I've got a quote from Spurgeon. And he's focusing on this word, but, okay, the contrast. He says this, Note that contrast, note it always. Observe how weak we are, how strong he is. How proud we are, how condescending he is. How erring we are, and how infallible he is. How changing we are, and how immutable or unchanging he is. How provoking we are, and how forgiving he is. Observe how in us there is only ill, and in him there is only good. Yet our ill but draws his goodness forth, and still he blesses. Oh, what a rich contrast. So, just remember when you see that word but, quite often in the Bible, there's a massive contrast between who we are and who God is or what is good and what is bad. And it says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of our compromise and our sin, but he also grants us or gives us more grace to serve God as we should. So let's take a look at grace, the grace of God, what it is and how much we need it. So, Acts 20.24, the New Living Translation says, But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it 
for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news, the gospel, about the wonderful grace of God. So what do we do as a believer? What's our purpose in life? Is to share the gospel about the wonderful grace of God. Acts 13.43 Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. So what do we rely on to live a godly life? The grace of God. Grace isn't just a word that means unmerited favor. It's true. But we receive power. We receive everything we need undeservingly to live the life that God wants us to live. Okay, so Romans 5.15, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. So even greater is God's wonderful grace. And Romans 5, 20 and 21, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So again, we're not just talking about forgiveness here, we're talking about power to live the Christian life. Verse 21 in Romans 5, So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead. You like that? Now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Spurgeon has a quote. He says, Sin seeks to enter. Grace shuts the door. Sin tries to get the mastery, but grace, which is stronger than sin, resists and will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times and puts its foot on our neck. Grace comes to the rescue. Sin comes up like Noah's flood, but grace rides over the tops of the mountains like the ark. You see how much we need God's grace? in the effect that God's grace has in our lives. Spurgeon then says, Do you suffer from spiritual poverty? It is your own fault, for he giveth more grace. If you have not got it, it is not because it is not to be had, but because you have not gone for it, you have not asked for it. So remember that grace is something that is given, so it must be received. So now we move on to how do we receive God's grace? It's available, but how do we get it? Well, verse 6, it says, God resists the proud. Grace only comes to who? The humble. So David Guzek says, Grace and pride are eternal enemies. Pride demands that God bless me in light of my merits, whether real or imagined. But grace will not deal with me on the basis of anything in me, good or bad, but only on the basis of who God is. So, simply put, God loves me because it's in his nature to love people. That's who he is. God chooses to love and bless mankind simply and only because he wants to, not because of anything that we have done or can do. If it was, then it wouldn't be by grace. 
Now, God resists the proud. We talked about becoming an enemy of God if we're aligned with the world. And this is where I'm going to expand on that. So the word resist is a powerful word. In the Greek, it means to oppose, to set in opposition to, to range in battle against, to be opposite to, in opposition to, to be hostile toward, to show hostility, to set oneself against, to take away, to meet in battle. That's all the the Greek definitions for this word resist. So, (laughs) when we seek the things of the world, what are we doing? We are putting ourselves or pitting ourselves against God as his enemy and causing God to be hostile towards us. And this is what pride makes us, enemies of God. God hates pride and will do whatever it takes to destroy it in our lives. Why? Because pride will destroy us if he doesn't destroy it. Pride will destroy us if he doesn't destroy it. If we refuse to humble ourselves, then God will humble us. We are either positioning ourselves to receive the help from God we need to live a life that pleases God, or we are putting ourselves in a place where God will have to treat us as an enemy. Of course, positionally we are friends of God now, okay, as, a, as believers. But he will have to treat us like an enemy, like he did the children of Israel when they rebelled against him, when they got proud. If we don't humble ourselves, we will be treated like an enemy. We will be disciplined. And verse 6 also says, but gives grace to the humble. And David Guzik says, it isn't as if our humility earns the grace of God. Humility merely puts us in a position to receive the gift he freely gives. And a teaching by John Corson we did in Bible study a while ago about the little girl standing under the ice cream fountain, you know, the, the soft serve where you pull the handle down. All she had to do was just, she left it on. <laughs> Whoops. All she had to do to get more ice cream is go back over and put the bowl under. As long as she stayed there, she had all the ice cream she wanted. But if she walked away, she'd run out. She had to keep going back. So we have to stay in that place where we can receive God's mercy and his grace. And that place is humility. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. And again, this scripture is emphasizing God's grace. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Remember, it doesn't just mean undeserved. It's also power as well. By God's strength, God's power, we were undeservedly saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, Conclusion, I'm just going to go back to that scripture in James 4 verse 5. 
The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So I'm going to read that from the Amplified Bible, James chapter 4, verse 5. Or do you suppose that the Scripture is speaking to no purpose? That says, The Spirit whom He has caused to dwell in us yearns over us, and He yearns for the Spirit to be welcomed with a jealous love. Now I've got a segment from John Corson's application commentary to finish on here and it explains I think quite well what it means when it says a spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously so yearns jealously means guards jealously in other words the spirit of God that dwells within us wants the very best for us when we talk about grieving the Holy Spirit we must understand the spirit is grieved not because we've hurt him but because Seeing what's ahead for us, if we continue on the path we're on, he hurts for us. If you're a dad, you can understand this. And here's a story that John Corson tells. Your 16-year-old daughter can't stop talking about him. So finally, a week or two later, he shows up on his Harley in black leathers, a marijuana joint hanging out of his mouth, a swastika tattooed on his arm, a patch over his eye, a flask of whiskey in his pocket, a Playboy bunny on his shirt, saying, I like your daughter. Although your daughter says, isn't he dreamy, isn't he wonderful? You know he is nothing but a nightmare and that she'll be hurt badly if she gets on his Harley and goes down the road of life with him. That's how the Holy Spirit feels when he sees us getting on the back of some Harley we think is dreamy, is wonderful. He's not mad at us, he's not disappointed in us, not hurt by us, but jealous for us as a dad is for his daughter. So, Father, help us to realize that you love us so much and Lord, you want the best for us. And Lord, you are angry and you don't like those things which cause us pain. It's the same for us with our kids. We don't like those things which hurt our kids. And we don't like to see them suffer. It brings us pain. And Lord, you grieve. You're saddened by the things that we choose to do sometimes. Lord, help us not to covet the things of this world. Help us to find our contentment, our satisfaction in what you have already given us and what we continue to receive. We have received eternal life. We are living eternal life right now in relationship with the creator of the universe. Help us to be satisfied with your love, with your grace, with your mercy, with the things that you have chosen to give us. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.